So any human being living this experience would have the same kind of emotions, for example. And being imperfect, having vulnerabilities, is being human. Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I am your host. Today, we're talking about self-compassion, mindfulness, and emotion regulation. This is obviously my favorite episode. This is what I talk about all the time on social media. And I'm excited that I found a researcher who wanted to join me to talk about this because I do think that these are really important topics to discuss. And I think that they are topics that can make a really big difference for us as parents. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute here at the Neuro in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. And if you're not doing so yet, please subscribe to the Curious Neuron podcast and leave a rating and a review to let us know if you're enjoying it. You can also follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. And you can visit our website at curiousneuron.com where you can read blog posts, you can join a research study, or you can visit the Curious Neuron Academy and purchase one of our PDFs or courses to help you with parenting. And as always, if you have a question for me, you can email me at info at um, Some of you have been sending me DMs, but they get lost and sometimes I respond to it and then I can't follow up. So please send me an email instead at info at or just visit the website and click on contact. The email will come through to me. That way I will be able to answer your questions or help you out. My guest today is Dr. Simone Guandelman, who is a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, doctor in psychology and researcher in the laboratory of clinical psychology of social interactions at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain, which is in Germany. His research areas include emotion regulation, empathy, and social cognition, and applications in mental health and psychiatry of mindfulness, as well as compassion interventions. He uses behavioral psychophysiology and neuroimaging studies in his research, and he teaches at the pre- and postgraduate level in Germany and Chile as well. He also collaborates in various interdisciplinary projects on art and science. I'm excited to share this interview with you. I think there's a lot that you can start applying right away. I hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I did. I will see you on the other side. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining me. I think the conversation we're going to have today is something that applies to both the parents and the children. I talk about emotion regulation and self-compassion a lot with Kirsten on. So I'm really excited to hear about the research from you. Can you give us a, a little description about the research you do in your lab? Yes. So first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. It's um, yeah, fascinating to be able to talk to a broader audience who might benefit from this stuff. Yes. Yes. So what we do, what I have been doing here in Berlin is to, is two things on one side, trying to attempt to investigate the mechanisms of uh, mindfulness meditation um, in this way, investigating the emotional regulation mechanisms. So how it works. Mm -hmm. The other side, um, we have been working also investigating self-compassion it also the connection of self-compassion with emotional regulation as well, but also uh, understanding, for example, its effects on specific populations, for example, uh, medical doctors or special, um, yeah, group in need of uh, 
killed like this. Um, I, I think for our audience, I'd love to describe a little bit about what we mean. So let's start with a few just definitions so that we're all on the same page. W what do we mean when we say motion regulation? So emotional regulation is the different attempts and the voluntary actions or different ways in which we can modify the current emotional state we're living in. Um, so this can be like several types of, um, yeah, behaviors, let's say. And this can also include um, not just um, decreasing our negative emotional states, but also includes um, generating or even enhancing positive emotional state. I love that we have to keep that in mind, right? That both positive and the negative, it's not just about the negative emotions, but I think as parents, um, I don't, I don't think we ever think about our emotion regulation strategies or we don't really think about the self-compassion part. But then when you have kids and, and they start losing control of their emotions and you realize maybe you haven't developed certain skills that you should have in the past, um, I, I'd love to hear about maybe some strategies that exist out there that people are using and some strategies that through research is, is recommended and strategies that are not really recommended that maybe some of us are using without even realizing. Yeah, I mean, I think this is it's a bit of a tricky question because I think most of us um, have a certain background of or certain emotional regulation strategies that already work for us. And I think parenting is definitely a huge challenge for those strategies that we, we have already. So uh, in many cases, we need to uh, develop certain new workaround. But um, what we know already is also helpful. But I think where self-compassion really um, can be a really helpful tool is because uh, at least when it's the first time we are parents, uh, we might tend to believe that we are such a failure because we are facing so many challenges that is not just taking care of the others, also taking care of ourselves. And this is where, why self-compassion is so interesting is because It's a way of targeting this little person who is behind the suffering, right? So whenever we feel really bad or something is out of control, or we are feeling in a, in a very challenging day, we often start to criticize ourselves. And, and we start to have cognitions, like thinking, oh, I'm such a failure. This is so difficult for me, and so on and so on. So self-compassion is really one way of uh, validating us, uh, being with us and really taking care of this person who is behind this parenthood and so on. What have you seen in terms of self-compassion, you know, in terms of research? I, I'm curious to know because, you know, we're saying that it's important, but maybe there's a parent listening and saying, you know, when I have a really hard day, what difference would it really make if I... I don't know, like if I change the way I was thinking, right? Like my child will still be screaming and crying for whatever reason. How can my thinking and self-compassion actually make a difference? So actually what is interesting is that um, it's not just thinking differently. I mean, it starts from there. Actually, for example, some uh, investigations using MRI uh, functional scanner They have shown that when we uh, have a negative self-talk, so we criticize ourselves, um, certain brain regions like the amygdala or anterior cingulate cortex start to get highly activated. But when we treat ourselves with compassion, with tenderness, 
uh, we're carrying, then those same re brain regions, if we compare them to self-criticism, get actually less activated. So the self-talk is important, of course, but it's also what we are actually learning to do is that um, there is a cycle between emotions and, and, and cognitions in a way. And we are learning how to actually, um, yes, treat ourselves with more comprehension, with more um, understanding, with more gentleness. And one um, trick for doing this is, for example, think, what could you say to your best friend who might be happening or going through the same struggle, right? And uh, very often we discover when doing that, we, that we might be super compassionate and intelligent when we're trying to help our best friend. But we don't do exactly the same when it is about us. It's true. We don't. You're right. I, I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you do study this. So you mentioned this one trick of thinking about what you would say to your best friend, but how are you... Um, how are you studying this in the lab? Are, are there different ways of studying this or is that always the, the key thing that you have people think of? Yes, for example, what, what, we, what we have done here is, I mean, there's different ways of approaching this. So you could, um, for instance, uh, use the self-compassion questionnaire developed by Christine Neff that you could, with that way, for example, measure like the trait of self-compassion. You could also... Um, make certain behavioral experiment to measure implicit attitudes. And then you could, like if you investigate self-esteem, you can investigate self-compassion. What we have done here, for instance, is to create an emotional regulation paradigm in which we stress out people with uh, difficult or stressful images. And then we ask them to manage their distress, uh, telling themselves internally, um, um, identically accept things as they are, for example. So in this way, we can really see during an emotion, emotional challenge how much uh, telling this to them is really helpful for managing their emotions. I think we defined um, emotion regulation, but what is self-compassion exactly? I know we, we spoke about what you were doing, but maybe somebody hasn't heard about that yet and they'd love to know what it means. Yeah, so self-compassion is... Um, Basically, is uh, pretty much uh, the simple answer is I already gave it. So it's um, when facing difficult situation, um, when there is emotional pain, so you treat yourself as you would treat your best friend. So it's bringing that uh, that understanding, okay. that comprehension. Um, there are three aspects of self compassion, and I want to. Um, presented uh, starting from there what we do when we are not self-compassionate and then it will be maybe more clear so for example when we are going through an emotional challenge and we feel really bad um, and we are not self-compassionate so what we tend to do is that first of all we criticize ourselves very hardly so we got strong with us we got ruminations we start to think negatively about ourselves I'm not enough, I'm not worth, I'm not good in this, I'm a failure, etc. and so on, so on. So we start to think really bad about ourselves. 
Second, we start to feel that I'm the only silly person who going through this have this kind of suffering. And then we start to feel isolated, right? We start to feel like, oh God, I'm, I'm the only person who is so bad on this, you know, and start to feel really, um, yeah, lonely on the suffering, disconnected from others. And the last point, so when we are going through all this, and this is kind of the, um, somehow the magic of negative emotions and we, and when we are completely um, abandoned in this, is that we actually get over-identified with those emotions. So in a way, we even don't realize that we are already so much into this and we are just acting out what and what we are, right? So we start to... Um, yeah, talk uh, louder. We don't treat others very good. Maybe we maybe uh, drive faster. Uh, different expressions that maybe we're not getting that we are actually in a strong emotion and we're still not aware of it. So how would we self-compassionate into this? It could be going through the three elements: is to have self-kindness, and this is the first, very first element: is the loving kindness aspect in which instead of criticizing ourselves we are bringing this gentleness this warmth to ourselves and not because we want to get rid of emotions it's because this thing is really painful right and we want to um, soothe ourselves a little bit because this current experience is being difficult and then we also bring the second element, which is uh, common humanity, which means that we understand this experience as something broader. So we understand that what is happening here is part of being human. So any human being living this experience would have the same kind of emotions, for example. And being imperfect, having vulnerabilities is being human. And that's fine. And then comes the third element, which is uh, being mindful, right? Instead of being over-identified with emotions, we can, have, we can have awareness of what's happening, right? So we are not anymore being lost in a certain emotion or experience. We can recognize what is happening here and we can be uh, more, yeah, more aware and also more clear about and this is also the first point, right? So this is kind of a circular system because only when we are aware of what is happening, only when we recognize in which emotion we are actually, is the starting point to respond compassionate to this experience. I feel like we are two years late with this conversation, <laughs> that we should have had this at the beginning of the pandemic, because I feel that I've, with the parents that I've spoken with, they really struggled with everything you mentioned in the past two years, right? Especially even though we knew we were all going through this, in the sense when you're in your own home alone for such a long time, you do feel that you are alone in your journey. And and I had shared on um, social media uh, am I the only one? So I tried to get people to ask questions so that they can answer them and see like, perhaps you think you're the only one that yelled today at your child or that, you know, feels like discouraged with your day, but then they put it out there and 85% of parents say, I'm experiencing the same thing today. And then the parents feel a bit seen. So I could understand that that makes a big difference in how you feel in your own self-compassion, um, you know, 
towards the situation. Um, you mentioned mindfulness, and I think that would be a great um, segue into that conversation because that's something I feel that we've been hearing a lot about uh, lately. Um, even lots of, you know, uh, programs or apps or, you know, parenting coaches, you know, talking about mindfulness and, and saying, you know, just just be present in the moment. But I, I think it's, there's so much more to it than just that. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about mindfulness and, and how you study that in the lab as well? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. My working definition of mindfulness is, mm -hmm. Is, is, it's a, it's a capacity that everyone has already. And this capacity is, um, the capacity of being present with your experience, but also with this attitude, um, that is uh, non-judgmental or acceptance, mm -hmm. right? And, and this sounds pretty, um, yeah, pretty simple. And every, in a way, we all do it. I mean, the practice, will in a way um, train our capacity that we have already, let's say. So there are different ways of measuring mindfulness and one is taking it as a trait. That means uh, we can understand it as, uh, again, as neuroticism or any other traits in psychology, like we can measure the, yeah, the disposition or the innate capacity of the person to be mindful. There are so many questionnaires that can measure mindfulness and all of maybe each of them has a specific characteristic, whatever. But there are also ways of measuring what, what we did, for example. Um, and one of the, the best methods is to investigate the effects of the mindfulness training. So in this way, we are uh, using um, mindfulness as um, experience in the subject the context of a, for example, eight-week program, which they learn the practice itself. Um, so with this, they uh, acquired this, they trained this capacity and they also acquired specific tools to develop this. But as you can see, it's very, um, it's uh, lots of different aspects are called, are called mindfulness, right? And there's a, a bit of a confusion. So mindfulness is a trade, mindfulness, Mindfulness is a practice and mindfulness is a state because you have to be in a mindful state. You have to be present. And so it's a bit confusing. And there's also mindfulness experts, mindfulness interventions. You know, it's, it's crazy, but we need to be aware of what we are referring to. But anyway, mindfulness interventions, though, they show that they have, uh, of course, so much uh, benefits, but uh, this also some studies that show the limits. So for example, in my study, I'm not seeing the effects of mindfulness over, let's say, empathy or more social aspects. And what I'm seeing is the mindfulness has more specific effects over the self or in the emotional regulation of the self, for instance, which is, um, which is very interesting because mindfulness training is much more about the self than the others. And compassion training will bring also the social aspect on board. So what is tend to be confusing maybe, or also frustrating for people is this, I think the idea that when you do mindfulness, you have to be, for example, you have to stop thinking or you have to be, uh, your mind needs to be completely uh, devoid of thoughts or things like that. And I think that um, that's, uh, it's it's a misunderstanding right so the brain 
is always thinking and that's predefined. And what is doing mindfulness, it's really about learning to bring back your attention from the thoughts in a way, right? So we're not fighting with the thoughts. It's impossible to, to make the mind to be completely white or empty, right? And so we are learning to familiarize ourselves with the mind as it is. We are learning to work with the mind as it is. And the mind is crazy. It's full of thoughts. And that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's <Yeah>. completely fine. <laughs> that's how it is. I love that you said that because I think that is a big misconception. And from the parents that I speak with, they say, how is it possible for me to practice mindfulness and just be like clear of these thoughts and okay when I have two kids screaming, one child, you know, getting mad at me for whatever reason. And I'm in this moment where it's absolute chaos. And, you know, as a parent, where do you begin, right? Where do you begin in those moments? Do you just say, I'm not the only one and everything will disappear? <laughs> the kids will still be there screaming. So I, I'm, I'm curious to know, um, I, from, I read some of your studies and for everybody listening, I will have the links to your studies in the show notes um, so that they can read them. Uh, but when it comes to this, these mindfulness-based interventions or you're working on um, uh, an eight-week program, like you said, focuses on meditation, I believe, right? Um, body scanning, yoga too, if I'm correct. So how... How will practicing that help a parent <laughs> or like somebody in that moment where you just feel like it's a bit chaotic around you and, and, and you don't even know where to begin? Yeah, I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a fascinating question <laughs> because, I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's also great. I mean, it's, it's, it's also very difficult to ask a parent like that, as you're describing, to, yes, go and meditate for one hour a day, right? It's, uh, it's unlikely that you will find that time, right? But, but I mean, I think one of the very, um, I mean, one, it's, it, in a way, mindfulness and open up different, um, different let's say, skills that uh, are very important to really handle our emotional states in general. Mm. Um, so for example, to observe what you're feeling, for instance. So how much what you're just doing is you, you are not aware that you're completely annoyed, frustrated, with anxiety, uh, with anger. Uh, you, I mean, how much of what we do during this crazy day that you're describing, we have no contact with really what we're feeling. So that could be a little exercise, for example. You can spend maybe just, I don't know, 10 seconds. You might have 10 seconds. Spend 10 seconds, observe, just observe. Contemplate the question, what do I'm really feeling right now? And I, for those who are listening, if, if you are doubting what Simon is saying, um, don't, because I started doing this maybe even a year ago now. Where even when things are okay in the home, um, to get in touch with how I'm feeling, and I might feel tired, and I might feel um, stressed because there's a deadline for something with work, but just knowing that you are feeling that way and being um, in tune with with yourself, when something happens that's chaotic, you're able to feel um, that self-compassion a little bit more easily because you're tired and you don't have the patience for something, for example. So when you have those 
inner dialogues, it really does make things easier. So just in case somebody's <laughs> wondering, will it work? It does. It really does. I mean, I mean, we have to think that if we don't know what we're feeling, it's impossible to manage it. It's like very mm -hmm. simple logic, you know? It's mm. we, we really need to know what exactly we are we really having in, inside just to be able to handle it in a better way. Otherwise, we will acting out, right? And this will have costs, right? We will shout out. We will not be able to actually um, tune in with the needs of our child, for example, because we are completely disconnected from even our own emotional state. So... Yeah. At which populations are you studying? So, I mean, by now I have used, um, yeah, healthy population, normal population, but now I was also a medical doctors. And you know what, what I think it's in common with medical doctors and uh, parents is the amount of stress you have to deal mm. and that you have to take care of others who are much in need But at the same time, your own resources are very scarce, and you are really like uh, burning out. So, I mean, here there's also the, the, the metaphor of the mask, the oxygen mask in the airplane, you know, when, if, if, the, if there is a problem, right, you need to take care of someone who is vulnerable and you're taking care of the person. First of all, you need to have oxygen yourself. And, and they, this is a very good picture to 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 actually know that uh, i mean we can go and still try to do our best uh, with the burnout or with lots of stress but you're taking care of another person you cannot be completely um burning you know that's going to be not very good help for the other and also for yourself we might think as parents that that oxygen is, you know, having to leave for a while or taking a break away from the home. But from what you just described, it could be as as simple as the self-compassion part. That, from what you're saying and from your research, it seems that just practicing that can make a difference when you're having those difficult moments. Yes. I mean, that also within this, what I saw, for example, in my longitudinal study of mindfulness. So, Mindfulness, in a way, can facilitate two ways of helping us with emotions. For, so one is acceptance, for instance, which is closely connected to self-compassion. And the other one is reappraisal, which is a very famous cognitive, um, cognitive behavioral technique, right? In which we actually change the meaning of the cognitive frame of, of, of what is happening. So, for instance... Um, This is not the end of the world. This is not a, such a complicated and nasty day. This is just my son wanting to get attention, right? So we can, in a way, right, cognitively cut lots of, um, uh, let's say, um, yeah, uh, different cognitions and reframe it for what it is, for instance. So mm -hmm. it's very close also to take per perspective of things. Um, and this is also facilitated with mindfulness. Also, it's facilitated accepting your emotional states. So, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm saying here, so there are different resources that can be used for mindfulness. But I also, in my study, I have another article connected to social emotional regulation, which is also very interesting and understudy uh, skill that um, 
can be also implemented. And what we observed in this study was that, I mean, what is social emotional regulation basically, right? So this is one way of influencing others' emotional states, right? So it's, it's many times actually we do it and we don't realize it that we are influencing others' emotions. And this is very common also in parenthood where we try sometimes to cheer up our son or the other way, maybe we want to help them to de-stress themselves or things like that, right? So this is part of, of, of being a parent is uh, engaging emotionally with the other and, uh, and of course, managing their emotions, right? So by definition, somehow a small child do not have all the cognitive architecture to manage their own emotions, right? So this is uh, part of the deal. And what we saw was actually very interesting is that when we try to decrease the distress of the other person, we also feel less stress ourselves. So this is a very interesting thing because um, on the other side, we know that empathizing, and the, here comes again, the pain of being a doctor and the pain of being a parent, is that when we empathize with someone who is in suffering, stress us out pretty much. And that's what we know. I mean, empathy is really feeling with the other. And if the other is in pain, I will be in pain. But with social emotional regulation, we can also approach the other emotionally. We can help the other to decrease their stress. And when we do that, and this is what we observe in the brain, is that there are some parts of the brain who engage in this regulation of the other, also help us to regulate our own stress. So there is a benefit for the regulator. That's fascinating. This was, when I came across this term in your research, the social emotional regulation, I had never read about that. This was new to me. I had always read about emotion regulation and I had heard of co-regulation, um, but I'm assuming this is what you're talking about, right? The kind of the helping somebody with their emotions. And I had no idea that it would help you because sometimes it takes a lot of energy to to help somebody, um, especially a child, right? Um, but I could see how it could help you and yourself like calm down if you're helping them calm down <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating work. Is this something that you can train? What have you been looking at in your studies? Is this something that just comes more natural to some people or we can actually work on this? Yes. I mean, what we saw is, is basically we also observed this um, in the intervention of with the MBSR study. And we actually, we, saw a trend toward increase, but was not really after the, the corrections. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not really significant. So it, it was, again, um, part of the, the negative findings we got that there mm -hmm. was no real effect of the intervention on this aspect, which is, um, which is part of the, um, what, uh, what, what just said. So the effects of mindfulness over the social uh, domains, let's say, uh, were not there in our study, and and and, and yeah. But um, I I might think that this is uh, this might be a trainable um, skill, absolutely. Mm. And this is yeah, it's a new somehow of a new construct in the cognitive mm. psychology or cognitive neuroscience. But it's not so new in the world of attachment, for example, in which mm. uh, they 
different investigators and researchers from even the 80s already were thinking on this uh, maybe with slightly different terms like interactive regulation uh, they call it and and there are some interesting things showing how actually from the parenting and attachment theories uh, and, uh, and research fields we're already somehow thinking of on this I'm gonna to have to dig into that one, that that research. That research. Um, I I'm curious to know, with the time that you've been studying this, have you been changing your own practices? Has this like had an influence on yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, somehow yes. Um, it is a, <laughs> it is a quite a. I mean, I started the PhD, for example, uh, really um, being a meditation instructor. And somehow very much of a fan of mindfulness. Yes, this is mm. good. This is uh, makes so much sense <laughs> and so on. And, you know, in my lab, people were uh, not against it, but people were neutral. This, this was not a meditation lab. It was a clinical psychology lab with pretty <laughs> nice people, supportive, of course, but also critical. You know, this is science. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. I also started to be, I, I learned to be more critical about this. So I, I passed through different stages. Was, at some point, I got extremely critical, thinking that may, maybe this was, um, yeah, maybe this was all, uh, yeah, not 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 being able to really prove certain effects or whatever, because you know um, uh, there are also pretty uh, much of studies in mindfulness and not very high quality studies. Mm. But then there there have been, yeah. Other, uh, there was this large project called the Resource Project and other beat studies that showed that it was um, effective in some aspects. And I also seeing my data, I had now the impression that uh, it's a time of um, not necessarily deflating mindfulness, but finding the right place. So it's not a miracle solution. And I think that's that's complicated. The overselling of it. It's not yes. gonna make you a super person. It's not gonna target all the aspects of a person you know I, i see it in my data it's not going to work for empathy for example and this is what other studies have also seen it's going to work on your stress management emotional regulation for yourself at this this is my impression and and more negative studies will come out and have come out also and, and this 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 is good i mean we need to really um, um have more clarity about what is really helpful And what is not also that's why there exist so many mindfulness interventions right so you can see there are lots of them and this is this mm. is this is pretty good because uh in eight weeks you cannot cover the you know a whole person the whole amount of disorders so you need a program specifically for depression maybe that's pretty adapted and it's targeting the problem this and People who have personality disorder, we need another thing. People who have anxiety, we need another thing, and, mm -hmm. and so on and so on. And people who need more compassion or empathy, of course, they would need another program. And that's, that's what I think that um, people should be aware of, that mm -hmm. these programs are very targeted, and this is the richness of the field to be able to handle all this together. I love that you're saying that because I think sometimes science is taken into a like a taken into different context and used as if it's a cure all for something and especially when it comes to parenting or understanding your child's development 
not every single thing will work for them. And I try to tell parents that because, you know, you might look at some sort of behavior study and it says that this sort of intervention works. You try it with your child and it doesn't work, but it doesn't mean that it will for them. And people or parents sometimes feel, am I doing something wrong? What's wrong with my child? Or did I do something, you know, did I mess something up? And it's not about that. It's just that it's so different for every person. And I love that you're bringing that up because I don't want... um you know, parents to think that anything we talk about here at Kyrus Neuron is a quick fix or, you know, uh, an easy solution to something. It's research and then you try what you want from it. And you, you know, like you said, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And not all research is positive. Sometimes we learn something because of a negative study uh, and we learn from that and keep growing. So I think um, it's really important that you mentioned those points and I appreciate that. Um, I, I, I'd love to understand a little bit more about, um, you mentioned um, reappraisal and maybe a parent is hearing this for the first time. You know, in, in terms of emotion regulation strategies, we we hear sometimes of the importance of our upbringing. And I just wanted to touch on that a little bit because again, I think parents are struggling with helping their children and like the social emotional regulation part. And it's partly because they're stressed um, and and understandably so, but it, does it help to go back and understand how emotions were supported within your home and, you know, or not, you know, perhaps you were told not to cry and, and just uh, any other emotion besides happy was like a bad emotion in your home. Does that have an impact on how you you regulate your emotions as an adult and how you include, you know, self-compassion and mindfulness? I mean, I would say the big numbers would say yes, but I think <laughs> the mechanisms are very integrated and we don't understand it completely, but, but, uh, but there are very interesting studies, longitudinal studies, for example, that show a specific characteristic of mother to infant communication can predict mm borderline symptoms uh, 10 years later in the infant, for instance, right? So there are studies that are showing that the way we are treated when we are a child will somehow influence our own emotional life. And, and this is, um, yeah, the attachment world mm-hmm. have also shown this, like people who have insecure attachment, which is a and heritage of our upbringing, right? Uh, this uh, it's already a risk for psychopathology, and many psychopathologies have emotional dysregulation as a central or crucial characteristic. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is, is mm. part of uh, part of uh, another um, another line of research have shown, for instance. Uh, yeah, so parents who have uh, insecure attachment or have more um, emotional dysregulation, also those, those uh, childs, they also have a higher cortisol, for example. Right? And we can think that higher cortisol is, is a factor to having um, the, the stress axis dysregulated. And this will also, is definitely a risk factor to how uh, to have our own um, emotional regulation system um, more um, on the vulnerable side of things, you know. And then if we add um, uh, environmental factors, uh, life crisis, and so on, then you're, yeah, you're building up uh, potentially a mental disorder or someone who is extremely vulnerable. So, yeah. yeah. 
which sort of support, knowing what you know from your research, what sort of support do you wish parents had, um, you know, in society, regardless of where somebody's listening from in the world? But um, do you wish that there were more programs implemented within society or, you know, more help for, for not just parents, but anybody actually within the field that you're studying? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful social question. I see it. I mean, I think that uh, parenting And in, in the very beginning and the very first months, I mean, it's such a, such a vulnerable, um, position, uh, right? So, uh, at least one adult needs to be 100% for someone else who has not, who is not able to take care of him or herself, you know? And that means one person who cannot, of course, cannot work. And, and hopefully that person is not single, right? So there's someone else who can provide. But still the system, you know, it's very vulnerable. And, and I think the social system should help to take care of this in the, in the broader context. I think uh, there's already so much stress happening within this diet or this family, uh, how they will um, be able to cope with, uh, what, with whatever is bringing every day is so new that if the, if the social system can provide some extra support And that's, I would say that's extremely helpful for those parents. I agree with you. And I think that we need to support the parents a lot more than we are now. And that when we do that, it's for the better of the child's health and mental health um, later down the road, <laughs> I, yeah. I believe from, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate because I get, I'm, well, I'm lucky enough to speak to a lot of parents through Curious Neuron and they are missing the support. Like, and they feel it, right? Especially, so I'm in Canada, we have up to 12 months of maternity leave and a dad will also get, I think he can have up to six months of paternity, of paternity leave. Um, in the States, from what I spoke in the United States, they can have six weeks off, <laughs> which is just not enough for the attachment and the bonding. And we have the research to show. Um, so it's definitely a conversation that we need to have, I think, more. Um, and that's why I tried to include the researchers so somebody can hear, <laughs> somebody will know that it's important. Um, given the The work that you've done what are some things that you just wish every single parent knew from the moment they become a parent um you know it could be one or two things that that you think are just really important for them to know i think it's a lot on, on accepting that uh, we will mess it up and that's fine and that we will we will just uh, everyone pass through it and it's mm -hmm. a completely human situation and it's fine not to do it perfect And we will make mistakes. And there is another researcher at, at Tronning now, and, and he has uh, some research that has shown that actually everyone makes mistakes, but the ones who are bring an, a secure attachment are the parents who are able to repair. Mm. And that's, I think, very, very beautiful. So, I mean, we all we make mistakes. But the critical thing is to repair. I mean, that means that we are aware that we are making mistakes. We're not just going out with it. We know, okay. And that means that we really need to be accountable with the child, right? That we have to take care of ourselves. It's just, it's just, it's not only about me. It's only about the other one. And we need to be fine, relatively okay to actually uh, bring someone who is relatively healthy as well. Mm. And that means that we need to be able to repair when we sit up. Mm. I love that. I, I think it's perfect. Um, 
advice for parents because I do know that many struggle with wanting to be perfect. And perhaps social media and this new world that we live in has played an impact in that. I'd be curious to know that. I, I often talk to my mother and my mother-in-law and they're like, we, we couldn't compare ourselves because we had no means to. We had no method of, of seeing somebody else and how they were parenting and how their life was on the other side. We just knew about our neighbors and that was it, you know? And now it's a different world. Um, and from the parents that I do get to speak with, Uh, there's a lot of comparison and, you know, whose child is developing more quickly or who's doing better in, in certain, you know, academic skills. And it's just, it becomes a lot for parents. So I think that's really good advice and that can help a lot of parents. Um, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I enjoyed our conversation. I think there's a lot more to talk about and perhaps we'll have another conversation soon. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you for your invitation. It's really nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Curious Neuron podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review and to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. All the links and the articles that we mentioned in this episode are in the show notes for this podcast and can also be found on our website. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.